Okay, we are live. So welcome back. We had our nice Passover break and we're very happy to see so many people have joined us for our learning during the Omer period. Reminder for those who are counting, when it's dark tonight, it will be the 11th day, just so you know. Um, and this is our first class in this term. This is the first session of the Legacy of the Ten Plagues with Dr. Malka Simkovich. So I'd like to give a little introduction to the class and to our teacher, just because it's our custom here. Uh, so the vividly dramatic account of the 10 plagues in Exodus 7 to 12 has long captured the Jewish imagination and given rise to various interpretations and retellings, which consider the meaning of this story. This series will open by exploring how Jews in the Second Temple period viewed the story as an origin tale, rich with meaning regarding the beginnings of the Jewish people and their chosenness. It then considers the ways in which the legend also intrigued Greeks, Romans, and early Christians, who modified and circulated the story as a way of making a claim about the Jewish people's origins. The series closes with an examination of how the story of the plague stirred profound feelings of pride and ambivalence among rabbinic writers who struggled to comprehend the reason for human suffering and the nature of the covenantal God. In this first class, we will talk about the 10 plagues in early Jewish memory and a little bit about our teacher, Dr. Melka Simkovich is the Crown Ryan Chair of Jewish Studies and the Director of the Catholic Jewish Studies Program at Catholic Theological Union in Chicago. She is the author of The Making of Jewish Universalism, From Exile to Alexandria, and Discovering Second Temple Literature, the Scriptures and Stories that Shaped Early Judaism, which received the 2019 Association of Jewish Libraries Judaica Reference Honor Award. Simkovich's articles have been published in journals such as the Harvard Theological Review and the Journal for the Study of Judaism, as well as online forums such as the Lairhouse, the Torah.com, and the Times of Israel. She is involved in numerous local and international interreligious dialogue projects, which help to increase understanding and friendship between Christians and Jews. So without further ado, Dr. Simkovich, please take it away. Thank you very much. Good evening, everybody. I hope if you're celebrating, you had a wonderful Pesach holiday. I'm very happy to see some familiar faces. Uh, some of you have been to my other classes recently. It's wonderful to see you, especially um, I see some names that are familiar, but I'm very appreciative to those of you who have turned your videos on because your faces animate me. So thank you to those of you whose videos are on. Uh, if you can turn on your video, that's great. But of course, I understand that there are all kinds of things happening. And also a busy time at night. So if you can't, I understand as well. I have to admit that when I was invited to give a series about plagues in Jewish tradition, I was maybe not very enthusiastic. Uh, uh, I was perplexed and I had to give some thought as to what kind of angle uh, I would bring and what I would focus on. Certainly I couldn't imagine that people would join a series to learn about plagues when we've been immersed in it for over a year and deeply traumatized in a very, very profound sense. Uh, and so I don't want to talk about plagues for the next three weeks. I want to talk about a love story. And the love story that I want to talk about is a love story between the land of Israel and Egypt. And the love story that I want to talk about is the love story between the Israelites and the Egyptians. And I'm opening up with a controversial angle here because the reason why 
we talk and we talk and we talk and we talk about the differences between the land of Israel and Egypt, not self-arrogating, self-arrogating, dependent on the one true creator God, not dependent on the one true true creator God. The reason why we talk and we talk and we talk about the differences between the Israelites and the Egyptians is because these differences are not self-evident. And over and over we see in the Hebrew Bible a profound attraction to Egypt. Why are we told in Deuteronomy that we cannot go back to Egypt? Because the Israelites want to go back. This is the first thing that they beg for in Exodus. They want to eat like the Egyptians, they want to live like the Egyptians, they want to be among the Egyptians, they're, they're captors, the very people who enslaved them. It's hard for us to understand. When we think about the very earliest stories of, uh, of the plagues and how Jews read the scriptures that retell these stories about the plagues and interpreted them, we have to understand a historical reality, which is that not only are Israelites and then Judeans and then Jews always attracted to the land of Egypt, but that in reality, there are Jews always living in Egypt. Even though we think of Egypt as a land empty of Jews after the Exodus, this is simply not the case. Um, Jews are always trying to go back. And so when we think about the plagues and we think about more broadly, the relationship between the Jewish people and the people of Egypt, we have to understand that there's a kind of magnetic attraction to the land of Egypt. And the question is really why? Uh, so what we're going to do tonight and over the next few weeks is not just talk about how Jews retold the story of the 10 plagues, but how did Jews grapple with their ambivalence about the land of Egypt? What was it about Egypt that compelled them, that was interesting to them, that drew them out of the land of Israel physically and also psychologically? So we're going to step back and consider this love story, even though we just celebrated Pesach and we like to think about Egypt today and its leader Paro as the big bad wolf of the ancient world. That is not how Jews in ancient times understood Egypt. And over and over in the Hebrew Bible, we have stories of our ancestors going down to Egypt and God sort of plucks them back and tosses them into Canaan again. Abraham goes to Egypt. Uh, uh, Yaakov goes to Egypt. Yaakov's sons, when they bring Yosef's body back to Canaan, the land of Israel, for burial, the native Canaanites think that they're Egyptians. It's a very unknown story at a place called Goren Ha'atad. They misidentify the family of Yaakov as Egyptians. Of course, uh, the Israelites settled in Egypt many, many years before they're enslaved. And when we get to the end of the first temple period, well after the, the monarchy in uh, the land of Israel was established, Yirmiyahu, the prophet at the end of the seventh century BC, rebukes Judeans who have settled in Egypt because they're afraid that the Babylonians are coming and they're going to invade uh, Judea and they're going to burn down the temple. And Yirmiyahu is aware that there are Jews who've settled in Egypt. And he says, no, in chapter 44, you cannot go down to Egypt. If you look this up again, it's the beginning of Yirmiyahu, chapter 44, Mandal. Why do you provoke me to anger with the works of your hands, making offerings to other gods in the land of Egypt where you have come to settle? There's no reason to not regard this as a genuine epistle to the community of Judeans living in, in Egypt. And in fact, we have many such letters of Jews in the land of Israel writing to Jews in Egypt. And if you've taken other classes of mine recently, I've talked about this many times. We have many letters from the second temple period where Jews in Judea are writing to Jews in Egypt saying, come back. What are you doing there? 
What's interesting to me is not Yirmiyahu's condemnation of these Jews, but the reality behind the condemnation, which is that Jews keep going back to this place. What is the attraction? And I think we have to think about this question before we think about how did the Jews retell the story of the plagues? And I'm going to begin not with the, the late second temple period, although we are going to get there and I'm going to share my screen in a few minutes, uh, but I'm going to uh, open up with a passage in Devarim. In Devarim, we have almost an equation between Israelites and Egyptians. Actually, maybe right now I will share my screen. Um, and if you don't, uh, if you want access to this document, I would be very glad. Um, I would be very glad to send it to you after this class. You can always email me. I'll actually put my email in the chat right now. You can email me for the source sheet. But in Devarim, we have language borrowed from the story of the Exodus and the story of the plagues that essentially tells the Israelites, you're not qualitatively different from the Egyptians. The only thing that separates you from the Egyptians is that you've accepted a covenantal promise and that I hold, I got, hold you responsible in a way that I don't hold the Egyptians responsible for observing the Torah. And so at, uh, in this passage towards the end of Devarim, Moshe, with the voice of God, says to the people, if you do not diligently observe all the words in this Torah, fearing this glory is an awesome name, the Lord your God. What's going to happen to you? Here I have to read the Hebrew because it's a language uh, that's connected to the story of the Exodus. Over and over we have this word, what is God going to do to you? God is going to bring upon you all the diseases of Egypt of which you were in dread and they will cling to you. Every malady, every affliction you will receive, every makah, that could possibly exist in the world. And what's the message here on the cusp of the Israelites' entry into the land of Israel? They are told, don't think that you're qualitatively different than the people of Egypt. The only thing that separates you is your commitment to the Torah. If you abandon that, then you're treated like the Egyptians. Now we're going to see a very different attitude by the end of the second temple period, but it's important to understand our starting point. Our starting point is that in the Hebrew Bible, we don't see a presentation of Egyptians that is really quite, uh, that demonizes Egyptians as something totally different and outside the essence of Israelite existence. In fact, there seems to be a deep connection between uh, Egypt and the land of Israel, Egyptians and Israelites. The earliest retellings of the story are actually almost sympathetic to uh, the people of Egypt. And so I'm going to introduce you to a few Hellenistic Jewish sources that retell the story of Egypt. This is where we're really going to start the talk. And before I get to this very fascinating Greek document, it's actually um, a play that was probably performed, that was meant to be performed, uh, written in Greek by a very observant, pious, uh, Greek-speaking Jew in, in Egypt, I need to really flesh out the problem here. The problem is very clear. Alexandria, in the second temple period, especially at the end of the second temple period, has about a quarter million Jews. It is the biggest population of Jewish life outside the land of Israel in the second temple period. All of Egypt has up to a million Jews. You're talking about a massive concentration of Jews 
in Egypt. Now this is Hellenistic Egypt, remember, because when Alexander the Great dies in 323, the his kingdom, he doesn't leave a will and his kingdom is divided into three parts. And one of those three big sections is the Ptolemaic kingdom. So when I talk about Egypt in the second and first century BC, I'm talking about a Hellenistic Greek Egypt. So we have hundreds of thousands of Jews living in Alexandria. And despite what we've learned often in the context of Hanukkah, there isn't a binary between where you live and how you practice as a Jew in the ancient world. There isn't a binary between the language you speak and your manner of observance in the ancient world. Geography never correlates with observance. It doesn't today. It didn't in ancient times. And so you have observant, openly identifying Jews living in Alexandria and elsewhere in Egypt. We have archeological evidence, we have papyri, we have inscriptions. This is not debatable. It's just not debatable. And what's also not debatable is that these Jews are observing Jewish law. Now, whatever Jewish law looked like, it wasn't rabbinic law. There was no rabbinic community yet, but they did what I call the big three identifying markers of Jewish practice in the ancient world. They kept the Sabbath, they observed the holidays. That's sort of one, one category, time-related uh, observances. They uh, observe circumcision and dietary law. So Sabbath slash holidays, circumcision, dietary law. What else do the Jews do? They gather together regularly in the synagogues and they read their scriptures and they interpret their scriptures. And so these are observant Jews. They're not Hellenized. And yet at the same time, they embrace aspects of their Hellenistic host culture in a very positive way. So now these Jews have a very big problem. They have a crisis, right? You're talking about hundreds of thousands of Jews who are living comfortably in Ptolemaic Egypt, who are incorporating aspects of their host empire, who are speaking Greek, who are living among um, Greeks and Egyptians, and then later Romans. Again, the New York City of the ancient world is a good good an analog because there's such diversity in Alexandria. And yet their scriptures are telling them, don't go to Egypt. Egypt is the metaphysical opposite of everything that we stand for. You should only be in the land of Israel. The Egyptians and the land of Egypt stand in cosmic opposition to everything that God stands for. So what do you do as a Jew who is happily ensconced in Egypt at this time? Now, there is no evidence that these Jews um, en masse moved to the land of Israel. There's no Aliyah movement in the late second temple period. There's zero evidence of it. And they could have, they could have easily resettled themselves in Judea, but we have no evidence that they did so. Uh, what do they do? They devote themselves to scriptural interpretations in ways which might offer some sympathy towards the Egyptians. And we're going to look at some of these sources. And I'm going to uh, begin with this fascinating source uh, called uh, exagog. Exagog, of course, the Greek word for exodus, um, uh, is written by uh, a Jew. We know very, very little about this Jew. He's known as Ezekiel the tragedian, uh, and he uh, writes this play that retells the story of the exodus. This is a little bit of an old translation. I don't know that it's the best translation. I'm not sure also how long I want to spend on this, but it's a very fascinating document because in a way it's very Hellenist, uh, Hellenistic. The author is imagining staging the story of the Exodus on, uh, you know, as if it were a Greek play almost. And yet the message of the play is that the Jewish God, the God, uh, the covenantal God of the Jewish people is the one true God, something that no one really would have agreed with in the ancient world unless they were Jewish. Uh, but the emphasis here is not on the inherently 
evil nature of Paro or the inherently evil nature of the Egyptians or the land, but simply on the creator God, the God whom the Israelites come to recognize and whom the Egyptians only come to recognize by force. And so the emphasis again is not on the evil nature of Paro that we're gonna see in two weeks emerge in later rabbinic literature. So stick with me for the next two weeks because next week we're gonna talk about how uh, Greeks and uh, Romans and then Christians use this story. And then in two weeks, we're gonna talk about how the rabbis uh, view the story, but all the Midrashic traditions that we know of, uh, that we grow up with if we go to Yeshiva day schools, they don't show up at this early stage in Second Temple uh, writings. So Second Temple writings doesn't portray Paro as this evil genocidal maniac, uh, but simply the focus of the story is on, is on the universe coming to know God. And God is a fearsome God, an all-powerful, omniscient God. And so look at the miracles that Ezekiel tells of that underscores the fearsomeness of this God. Now, in the moment where Moshe and Aaron cast down their staff and it turns into a serpent, Moses says in the play, I cast it down, be gracious, Lord. Moses himself is scared right now. How dreadful, huge, be merciful to me. I tremble at the sight. My limbs do shake. Fear not, stretch forth your hand and seize its tail. That's God speaking to Moses. And again, twill be as it once was. And we have this emphasis over and over of the fearsomeness of God uh, that is experienced both by the Israelites and by uh, and by the Egyptians. And when God says, I shall slay the firstborn of mankind and bring down the wanton pride of men, the men here, of course, are people that are both on the Israelite side and the Egyptian side. Yet, what is the difference? Not that Paro is evil, but that he is hearted. He's hard-hearted. Uh, Paro shan't be moved by what I say until his firstborn child lies as a corpse. Then moved with fear, he'll send the people forth. Uh, and so again, we have Paro being afraid of the omnipotence of this God that he has never been exposed to, but not an evil genocidal God, uh, sorry, not an evil genocidal uh, king, which we see in later Jewish sources. Again, the emphasis here is on the all-powerful nature of a God whom the Egyptians and the Israelites do not know. And so the plagues are really suppressed, actually, uh, in Ezekiel the tragedy, and you, you see them mentioned, uh, but not dwelled upon. So you see uh, sort of one line for every plague. Swarm of flies shall come and sore afflict. Um, I shall make the heavens bitter hail. When I, when, I, um, when I highlight, do you see that? You see the highlighting? Yeah, right? Okay. Um, and cause to perish every crop and beast. Darkness I'll decree for three whole days. Locusts send who shall the residue of food consume and, uh, and every blade of grass, etc. cetera. Uh, okay, so you have the story of the plagues. It's not ignored, but really the emphasis here is on the fearsomeness of, of uh, the Jewish God. And you see something very similar in a contemporaneous Jewish historian known as Artapanus, whose writings are not all preserved, but they are cited in a later uh, church historian known as uh, named Eusebius. And Eusebius cites the writings of Ar Artapanos. He thinks that they're interesting and valuable. We don't have the writings uh, as an independent collection, but uh, scholars do think that Artapanos lived sometime around uh, the time of Ezekiel the tragedy, and so that would put him in the second, maybe late second century BCE, and likely in Alexandria. 
And you see something very similar in Artapanus, which is an emphasis on the fearsomeness of God, not on the inherent evil nature of Paro. Um, so again, according to Artapanus and cited in Eusebius, the king said to perform some sign for him, the king, of course, to Moshe. And now we have a citation from the Septuagint. By the way, you could see how both of these writers are so deeply knowledgeable of their scriptures, but through the Greek translation and the Septuagint. Moshe threw down the rod which he had and made a serpent. <clears throat> when all were terrified, and again, just like in Ezekiel, the tragedian, you have all sides, right? You have the Israelites are scared and the Egyptians are scared. Presumably Moshe and Aaron are also terrified. They don't know what's going to happen or they don't exactly know how this is going to pan out. It's a stressful situation. And then what happens, <clears throat> he seizes its tail, takes it up and makes it into a rod again. Proceeding a little, and then we have another quotation from the Septuagint. He struck the Nile with a rod. The river became flooded and deluged all Egypt. Uh, and so we have citations of the Septuagint and it's sort of uh, expanded with this commentary. And the commentary, and again, this is, I think, fascinating because this is one of the very, very earliest biblical commentaries in Jewish tradition, if not the earliest. Um, and they're written in Greek. They're coming from the diaspora in the pre-Rabbinic period. Um, and here we have an emphasis, again, on the fearsomeness of the of the Israelite God. You do have this line, the king became presumptuous at this event when the magicians are imitating the miraculous uh, signs of Moshe and Aharon. The king says, oh, my Egyptians can do what you're doing. And then he exacts further abuse against the Jews that obviously is anachronistic. It should be the people of Israel. Uh, but in any case, um, so you do have bad behavior on the part of Paro, but you don't have inherently evil behavior on the part of Paro. Um, now we're going to see that that changes, but I wanna give you two examples of what I believe are Egyptian Hellenistic Jewish writing, which interprets the plague in a way that shifts focus away from the inherently evil nature of Paro and really focuses on the fearsomeness of the one true God. Now, I want to contrast that before I show you some later first century sources that begin to really demonize Paro in a new way that's never seen before. I want to shift our camera lens from the land of Egypt to Judea, because as Jews in the second century BC are coming together regularly to read their scriptures in the synagogue. Remember, synagogues are in the second temple period not used for normative liturgy. They're used to come together and read the scriptures. So as Jews in the diaspora, specifically in Egypt, are coming together to read and interpret their scriptures in Greek, Jews in the land of Israel are doing the same thing and they're writing in Hebrew. The question of whether they're speaking Hebrew or Aramaic is an interesting live academic question, but they're reading the Hebrew scriptures and they're writing in Hebrew. They're writing holy texts in Hebrew. And we have a document from the late second temple period uh, known as Pseudophilo, which retells a, a vast amount of the biblical material. And Pseudophilo, <clears throat> again, probably written in Hebrew in the land of Israel, does something very different with the plagues. Now, whereas you might think that Egyptian sources would skip over the plagues and ignore them, <clears throat> excuse me, that's actually more similar to what happens in the Judean sources. 
So in the Judean sources, pseudophi sorry, in Pseudophilo specifically, the author focuses on certain aspects of the story and expands and expands and expands them, but pays almost no attention to the plagues, gives them just one or two sentences, almost skips them entirely. All you get from the first 14 chapters of the book of Exodus, the most dramatic story, arguably, in all of the Tanakh, all you get are a couple measly lines in Pseudophilo. When the king of Egyptians died, this very famous opening of Sefer Shemot, another king rose up <clears throat> and afflicted all the people of Israel, but they cried out to the Lord. And by the way, that's not true to the scriptural account because originally the Israelites cry and God hears them because they don't even know of God at that early stage. And there's a passive voice, the cry wafts up to God and God hears them uh, and, and intervenes proactively. But that's not Pseudophilus account, that's fine. They cry out to the Lord and God hears them and he sends Moshe and frees them from the land of Egyptians. And PS, by the way, here's one line about how that happened. God also sent them 10 plagues and struck them down. Now here were the plagues and sort of like, he's just like racing through it as fast as he can, uh, blood and frogs and matters of beasts and hail and death of cattle and locusts and gnats. And I'm trying to read this as fast as possible. And darkness, uh, uh, death of the first four. <laughs> Something in my throat. Now let's keep going. I mean, Pseudophilo clearly is not interested in dwelling on plagues. And again, I would have, if I had to guess, I would have assumed that a text like this would come from Egypt <clears throat> because the Jews writing in Egypt really are embracing so much of what the Hellenistic world has to offer culturally, and yet they do face the story of the plagues in a much more substantive way, but they argue about its meaning. The meaning is not about the inherently evil nature of Egypt or Paro or the Egyptians, but about the omniscience and the process of coming to know the one true God. Pseudophile doesn't know what to do with the story and is like, you know what, just I'm just going to give it a line and just move on. And then goes on and on and on about the experience of the 12 tribes in the wilderness. That's much more interesting to the writer of Pseudophile. We have one more contemporaneous source, which is also maybe from the early second century BC or from the later second century BC, scholars debate. It's a very famous document. You may have heard of it. This is the document of Jubilees, also land of Israel, written in Hebrew, what scholars call rewritten Bible, which by the way, if you come across that phrase, it's a terrible phrase. It's not a good phrase to use because they're not rewriting anything. This is more like fan fiction or proto midrash They're not rewriting or replacing the Tanakh, God forbid. <clears throat> and also the notion of Bible is not exactly um, accurate when it comes to this very, very early stage because you still have late biblical texts being written almost at the same time that Jubilees is being written. Uh, although I'm not gonna go into the dating right now of the last layers of the Tanakh. I will say that Bible is a very tricky word when we're talking about the middle of the second temple period or even the late, uh, the, the, the late second temple period. Uh, but what I'll say is this, Jubilees is absolutely a sectarian document. And at the same time, even though I'm very careful to emphasize that the vast majority of Jews in the second time period were not sectarian, this is both a sectarian document and a highly popular document. There are 15 copies of Jubilees found in the caves that are associated with the Dead Sea sect, 15. No Book of Esther, but 15 copies of Jubilees. And it probably was not written by that sect. It was probably imported from outside of the Qumran community. Uh, so there are clearly Jews who are enamored with this, uh, with this document. 
uh, how do I know it's sectarian? Uh, mainly because it espouses the use of a solar calendar, which is totally, uh, you know, sort of in opposition to the literal meaning of the Hebrew Bible, which uses a lunar calendar that's regulated by the sun. But to argue for a solar calendar in the ancient world is very bold and actually quite shocking if you think about it, because the author of Jubilees, who writes this very pietistic work, arguing that the patriarchs knew halakha and knew you know, all about the holidays commemorating events that hadn't even happened yet. And the, it's very proto-midrashic and there are all kinds of traditions that appear in Jubilees that only resurface again in the fifth century CE uh, collection, Bereshit Rabbah. So on the one hand, it's very uh, proto-rabbinic and mainstream. And yet, if you believe in a solar calendar, you believe that 99.9999% of Jews are eating on Yom Kippur. Right? I mean, think about that. You believe that pretty much every Jew is violating the most holy day of the year in violation of almost every, right, every holiday because they're keeping it on the wrong days. Eating uh, leavened bread on Passover, that's a very important uh, holiday, which we're going to look at uh, in Jubilees. And uh, if the sectarian outlook is based on the idea that the sect represents the true Israel and everyone outside the sect, even if they're Jewish, are not representative of the true Israel, then Jubilees is absolutely sectarian in the sense that he only thinks that those within his community will become beneficiaries of salvation. So it's quite an extreme document. And yet, in many ways, proto-rabbinic. All of this is to say, Jubilees, as a rewriting of the book of, of Sefer Bereshi, beginning of Shemot, does something very interesting with the plagues, which is that he passes all the <clears throat> oppressive punishing behavior that God takes credit for in the Hebrew Bible onto the evil angel Mastema. So while um, we do have the Malach Adonai, the angel of God, striking the firstborn in uh, Shemot in the biblical account, here we have a much more foregrounded role of the angel who isn't just the angel of God, you know, that could also be read as a manifestation or an emanation of the divine, if you want to get Hasidic. Uh, but, but this is like a totally sort of outside uh, evil angel who does the, the dirty work of God. And, and uh, this actually is, is, is quite an opposition, I think, to what we see um, in the biblical account. And so why would the author of Jubilees be motivated to talk about Mastema, uh, the evil angel doing all this bad stuff to the Egyptians rather than attributing all of these plagues to God. And I think the question that the author has is the same question that Sudafala has. They, they arrive at different, um, they arrive at different solutions. But the question is, how can we make a claim to the moral perfection of our one true creator, God, and deny the legitimacy of every other, you know, lowercase g, God in the pantheon, and then tell a story in which our God does all this stuff. How can that be? So Sudafilo sort of coughs it out in a sentence. Um, and Jubilee says, well, that was the evil angel. That wasn't God. God. God has angels to do his dirty work. Now, there are all kinds of possible Gnostic, I'm not going to get so, so into this, but there are all kinds of um, possibilities of what influenced the author of Jubilees to take this bad behavior and attribute it to an angel that I'm not going to go into, but I do think that the author is troubled by the behavior, um, by this, especially the 10th plague, but also all of the plagues. Um, and so what I want to do is just set 
the first two sources up against the second two sources. So the first two sources are Egyptian and Hellenistic. And here is where I think there's a, a surprise. You might think um, that these would be the texts that ignore the story of the plagues. And yet they really develop these stories, Ezekiel and Artipanos. They really develop the stories, but they focus on the greatness and om omnipotence of God. You see more discomfort with the story in the Judean contemporaneous documents written in Hebrew, Pseudophilo, and, and Jubilees. And you see sort of a struggling, I think, with how to deal with the story of the plagues. Now, all of that in the past 32 minutes setting the stage by way of introduction for the second two authors, which I want to focus on. The reason why I want to focus on these second two authors is because if you come back next week, we're going to make a lot of reference to them. And those two authors are Josephus and Philo. The reason why Josephus and Philo are very, very significant is because they represent a turn in how Jews are writing about the plague story in the late second temple period. Their writings of the story represent a profoundly new and very negative portrayal of Paro, of Egypt, of Egyptians, in a way which attributes an inherently evil nature to the Egyptians that you don't see in your texts. And the question is why? What is motivating uh, Josephus and Philo, although they're such different thinkers, and I'm going to give some more information about them in, in a minute or two, what is motivating them to say, no, this isn't just about country people who didn't know God, and this is how they came to know God. This is a story about an evil king who came into meta... Sorry, my internet connection is unstable, so if you stop hearing me, please raise your hand so I can know. Uh, to address it. Thank you. Uh, so this is the story according to Josephus and evil, uh, 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 Josephus and Philo of an evil king who wants to oppress the Israelites because he has an irrational hatred, an irrational hatred of the Israelites. And I'm going to argue next week that the portrayal of Paro as hating the Israelites irrationally is a reflective mirror of how Josephus and Philo are experiencing for the very first time in Jewish history, a rising anti-Judaism, which they find to be irrational, which argues that the Jewish people are misanthropic. So before I go any further, I wanna tell you a little bit about Josephus because these figures are, are actually very, very different from each other. Um, and very often when I teach about Josephus specifically, my students have a visceral negativity about him. Uh, I think in the Jewish community, he gets a very bad rap. He's, uh, people know he's a traitor. They know that he switched sides in the Great War and the Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire, uh, the war that lasted seven years from 66 to 73. Uh, but they don't know much about Josephus. And so I always like to make a case for Josephus. I like to come to Josephus's defense. Yes, Josephus was an aristocrat brought up, or so he claims, <clears throat> as a brilliant young mind in the suburbs of Jerusalem from a priestly family, whether or not he was as brilliant as he claims, or as prophetic as he claims, uh, can be debated. Um, but Josephus, first of all, is responsible for providing us with more historical information about the Second Temple period than anyone else. And of course, the question is, uh, how dependable can he be? The way that I like to talk about Josephus is, you know, you can't lie through everything. So 
<laughs> before I go on and I talk about what he wrote, I want you to think about this metaphor. If somebody writes a history of the 20th century and says, ah, yes, I fondly remember when Woodrow Wilson led us through the Vietnam War with his general Kim Kardashian, you're going to be like, whoa, 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 whoa. I was there and Woodrow Wilson did not lead us through the Vietnam War with his general Kim Kardashian because that just didn't happen. I was there. Right? So <laughs> that's my terrible metaphor. Point is, is that when Josephus is telling us the events of the Jewish rebellion against the Roman Empire, there's only so much exaggeration he can engage in. And so I think very often we're tempted to just throw him all in the garbage. And I'm going to make a case uh, that when he's talking about his contemporary times, there are very profound kernels of truth that we have to pay close attention to, especially when he talks about anti-Judaism. Okay, so Josephus writes four things. He writes an autobiography. Maybe that's the least reliable of his four writing collections. It's known as Vita, a life. Uh, that's what it means in Latin. So that's his slim little autobiography. He writes uh, a history of the Jewish people, 20 volumes, his most magisterial work. From It, it begins with the beginning of Abraham. Uh, and this is, of course, Antiquities of the Jews. This is, you know, just a massive, massive life project that he uh, commits himself to in the 90s. Uh, this is his last, you know, major project. Um, and he writes it from Rome shortly before his death. He also writes an account of the Jewish war, like I said, from 66 to 73. Of course, he starts it in the first century BC because he wants us to know that the conflict with Rome was very ancient and almost, you know, like irreconcilable. And that's a seven volume work called the Jewish war. And then, and this is what's going to be very important for next week, he writes the first systematic defense of the Jewish religion to ever have been produced. Again, the first person to write a defense of the legitimacy of the Jewish religion is Josephus. And that's called Against Appian. And the reason why this is such a significant document is because he cites what everyone is saying about the Jews, not just in his own time, but in the first century BC and second century BC, and even a little earlier, he collects everything he can find. And then he goes through each of the accusations and he fights back on each and every line. And by the way, if you read against Appian, you might feel a little bit shocked and maybe disturbed at how uh, resonant some of the accusations against the Jews are concerning themes of dual loyalty, concerning themes of insularity, of obsessive ritualism. Um, you'll find it all in the first century historian Josephus. So <clears throat> I'm sorry. very, yeah, sorry. Sorry, I just didn't, can you say again more slowly the name of that work? What was it called? Yes, uh, that is against Appion, A-P-I-O-N. So Appion was like the worst of the worst for Josephus. Um, so Appion is one of the uh, uh, Greek thinkers that Josephus is combating. Uh, so <laughs> yeah, sure. So it's the Jewish war, uh, Vita, the autobiography, Antiquities of the Jews and, um, and against Appion. And the reason why I really value Josephus again is because he is taken captive in the war. He's a disastrous general. All of his men are killed at Jotapata. I mean, he's really, he even says himself, like, I was an aristocrat. I was just walking around, my head in the books, and suddenly the war happens and they make me a general. I don't know what I was doing. And <clears throat> he might not have been so wrong about that. There, maybe he wasn't exaggerating because he really wasn't uh, very uh, adept. Um, at military strategy, he is taken uh, captive. He, in his own memory or in his own retelling, uh, 
claims that he prophesizes to General Vespasian in 69C and says, oh, I see you're going to be emperor. It's very easy to say that in the 90s when you know the Vespasian became emperor. emperor. But in Josephus's retelling, he says, oh, I see you're going to become emperor and Vespasian. It's like a very unstable time. Nero is just, I don't think Nero committed suicide yet, but he's about to. And then Vespasian is going to be battling against three other figures for the position of general and Vespasian is like shut up shut up I don't want you to say this it's total treason in the Roman world to claim to be an emperor when you're just a general and he's like no I'm not I don't know what you're talking about and Josephus is like no I see that you're going you're going to become emperor now again <clears throat> that's in the autobiography which you have to read with a grain of salt but we we do believe that he was taken to Roman chains and he was released by the Flavian family when Vespasian does become emperor and treated very 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 well and the surprise of Josephus is that he doesn't throw his Jewish heritage in the garbage, right? He could have. He was, he was commissioned by this Roman imperial family. He uh, you know, lived on their land tax-free, he tells us, and he was treated very well. And so the easy thing for Josephus would have been to blame the war on the Jews, but he offers 10 reasons for the war. Five of them are the fault of the Romans and five of them are the fault of the Jews. And he's very careful to, wear that, to walk that tightrope. So I don't want any questions about how evil Josephus is. Well, you can ask me questions about anything, but I do feel that it is a surprise and a pleasant one that Josephus works so hard to tell his Roman audience that there is integrity to the Jewish religion and very bold and courageous to tell his Roman audience in Greek, <clears throat> excuse me, that Paro is evil, right? In the context of being commissioned by the greatest, most powerful Roman leader in the world, he writes an exposition of the 10 plagues, which demonizes the most powerful, I'm not gonna say Gentile, because not a great word for this context, but the most powerful human leader of the ancient world, Paro. And Josephus accuses Paro of essentially genocidal mania. Something totally new. We're going to see it in the writings of Philo as well, if we have time. <clears throat> but look at what Josephus um, does with the figure of Paro. Again, you don't see this, I don't think, in the biblical account. You don't see it in earlier accounts, either in the diasporan Egyptian community or in the land of Israel. Here, the king despises the words of Moses. He has no regard at all to them. Grievous plague seized the Egyptians. <clears throat> Sorry, I should have had water here, but I don't. Um, I would demonstrate that Moshe did not feel in any one thing that he foretold them because it is for the good of mankind that they may learn this caution. And both Josephus and Philo will argue that God brought the plagues as a lesson, but the Egyptians were the problem that we could have a whole discussion about whose responsibility was that their hearts were hardened, but that the function of the plagues was to teach a lesson to an evil individual. And every time Paro convinced Moshe to have a plague stopped and he promised he would let the Jews go and then he changes his mind, God sees that Paro is ungrateful, that he places, uh, it, that he places the Israelites under horrible oppression, that uh, he's constantly lying just so that a plague will stop and then he goes back to his evil ways. And so of course there should not have been 10 plagues, but there are because Paro never learned the lesson. And so we have God punishing his falseness with another plague and another and another and another. Would that it would have only taken one, but such was not the case. Josephus places the onus of the hardening of Paro's heart 100% on Paro. 
even though in the biblical account, God says, I'm doing this because I want to delay the process. That's not what we see in Josephus. So if you look at paragraph 307 in the second book of antiquities, one would think that the, I think it's aforementioned calamities might have been sufficient for one that was only foolish without wickedness to make him wise, right? If Parr was just dumb, if he was just foolish, then he would become wise through these plagues to make him sensible. <clears throat> but Paro was not led so much by his folly, his foolishness, but by his wickedness. So that even when he saw the cause of his miseries, he still contested with God to the point where Paro acts totally irrationally. And it's the irrational hatred of the Israelites that is getting Josephus's goat that makes him, I think, think about contemporary irrational hatred of the Jewish people. So for Paro, there is no uh, rational motivation. Uh, you know, you might argue, and I think earlier uh, writers assume there's an economic motivation to keep these people enslaved. The entire economy is dependent on slavery, uh, you know, horrible, evil argument, but nonetheless, it's a kind of reasoning, even if it's an, uh, an evil one. But here, there is no reasoning. There is no rational. He simply hates the Israelites. He's not led by foolishness. He's led by wicked, by wickedness. Now you see, I'm going to try to wrap up soon so that we could have time for conversation, but you see a massive exposition of this theme in, a, in the work of a, I'm not going to say parallel because it's very, very different, but in the work of a first century, uh, earlier first century contemporaneous uh, figure known as Philo of Alexandria. Now he's, this is a Jew, a philosopher <clears throat> who lives from around 20 BCE to 50 CE who is absolutely what we call an observant Jew in the sense that Philo defends the integrity of not just the biblical scriptures, but the Jewish law, defends the integrity of the Sabbath, circumcision, dietary law, absolutely not Hellenized, even though in later Christian tradition, there's an attempt to co-opt him and call him Philo Christianus. No, he's Philo Judaicus. Uh, medieval editors are careful to tell us, Philo Judaicus. Uh, and Philo, as an observant Jew living happily in Alexandria, is also very sensitive to rising anti-Judaism in Alexandria. In fact, in the year 38, anti-Jewish riots break out in Alexandria when the client king of Judea, Agrippa, passes from Rome through Judea through the Alexandrian port. And Agrippa knows he's very unpopular. He's from, uh, he's a member of the Hasmonean dynasty. He descends from both Herod and Hasmoneans. Uh, that doesn't make for a great combination for, um, for political diplomacy. We could talk about that later, but Agrippa was very, very unpopular. In Alexandria, people thought he was a Jew with too much influence because he had a lot of close friends in the Roman court. And Agrippa indeed is very close with figures uh, uh, in the Claudian and in, in the Julian Claudian family. So Agrippa knows that if he goes through Alexandria during the day, there will be violent riots. And so he passes through at night thinking that maybe people won't recognize him. He goes in disguise. He spends a night at the port before he moves on to Judea. But it is discovered that he's in Alexandria. Uh, and by, by the time people realize that he's in the city or that he has just left the city, violent riots against Agrippa break out. Philo says that they took the town fool and they dressed him up as a Judean king and paraded him throughout the streets. Synagogues are set on fire. <clears throat> Hundreds of Jews are killed. This is actually one of the biggest disasters in diasporan uh, Jewish history in antiquity. 
that we don't know about. Meaning this is just, it was a total catastrophe that many of us have just never heard of. In 38 CE, there were violent uh, riots in Alexandria. And then again, in 115 CE, 118 CE. Um, so, so at the same time that you have a city where Jews are comfortable, where they're integrated, where they feel at home, where they feel that they're, you know, thriving at the same time, uh, there is extreme anti-Jewish sentiment, not among all the inhabitants, but a, a loud minority perhaps. So Philo was very sensitive towards uh, these uh, anti-Judean uh, sentiments. In fact, he's a member of a five-person delegation to go to Rome and argue on behalf of the Alexandrian Jews to say to, to Rome, we need intervention. You have to come to Alexandria and defend our synagogues and our people. Unfortunately, the person in charge at the time is Caligula, who basically says, get out of town, I'm busy. Uh, I'm not going to say what he was busy doing most afternoons, but Caligula was not interested in helping the Jews out, <clears throat> and he laughs Philo out of the palace. Um, Philo writes about all of this in two different treatises, and uh, it's it's a well document well documented incident. In any case, Philo is very very uh, ambig ambivalent about uh, his true admiration for the culture of Egypt and his insistence that Judaism ought to be treated as a religion with total integrity. Now, how do you put those together when you're interpreting the biblical text, the story of the Exodus? And so Philo does what Josephus does to an extreme. And again, I think this is very bold. I think it's actually quite shocking. Philo has paragraphs and paragraphs and paragraphs about this story. I mean, it's just almost never ending. In fact, almost the entire treatise entitled The Life of Moses is really the story of the plagues. Uh, and so I can't go through all of this now because I wanna leave time for some conversation. Um, but you know, if you think about Pseudophilo saying the whole story in one sentence, or even uh, Artapanos who sort of, you know, has a few paragraphs but really doesn't develop it. And you compare it with what Philo does. Um, <clears throat> why is Philo leaning into this story? the way that he does. Look at this description, so poetic, when they had recovered a little from this punishment, from the frogs, like wrestlers at the games who have recovered fresh strength after a struggle, so that they may contend again with renewed vigor. They again return to their original wickedness, forgetting the evils which they had already experienced. But for Philo, this is all a lesson from the all-merciful God who loves all of humankind and wants to bring humankind into a state of knowing him. If such a man really does not know, let him learn, <clears throat> first of all, that God was desirous rather to admonish the Egyptians than to destroy them. So God is acting in his mercy because if the Egyptians really got what they deserved, they would all be dead. But if God design had designed to destroy them utterly, he would have not employed animals to be co-adjudicated. I don't know how to say that word. <laughs> I think I might have skipped a few lines when I was writing it in, in the work of destruction, co-adjudicators. I have to look it up. But he would have just killed them all, right? But there's a lesson here. And the lesson has to do with the knowledge uh, of the power of the one true God. And so these are not uh, irrational punishments. These are chastisements towards learning a lesson. And I wanna just go down to the end of this uh, story. I mean, on and on and on with every single plague. Philo has so much to say, and that's his style in general. Oh, okay, the 10th plague, the exodus. Okay, uh, so look at this over here. Uh, nope, that's Choshech, that's darkness. Uh, 
So let's settle over here. It seems to me that if anyone had been present to see all that happened at that time, he would have not have conceived any other idea than that the Hebrews were there as spectators, the Israelites were there as spectators, not as, you know, joyful commiserators, but that they were there for the purpose of being taught themselves that the most beautiful and beneficial of all lessons, namely piety. So everyone is there to learn the same lesson. This brings us back to the second century BC uh, story of uh, Ezekiel's exagogue. Um, and so the Israelites are innocent bystanders in God's, uh, in God's play, once again in Philo. But here, as in Josephus, Paro is inherently evil, uh, driven by irrational hatred of the Israelites, and there's nothing that God can do but gently chastise them over and over and over again until they learn their lesson. Now, why do we see this turn in the first century? Why do we see suddenly, uh, suddenly it getting personal, especially given the history of Jewish attraction to the land of Egypt and its culture, uh, beginning the first temple period with Yirmiyahu? Why in the first century do we see such a negative turn? And the answer is going to be explored next week. The answer has to do with what Jews in the, uh, uh, not Jews, well, with what uh, Egyptians and Greeks and Romans are saying about the Jews in the end of the second temple period, the accusations that they are making about the Jews, um, which creates, um, which creates uh, sort of an extreme negative fervor that you don't see in earlier sources. So I want to pause now and I'm going to, uh, you know, we're not such a big group. So rather than me read the, the comments, what I'm going to do is just invite all of you. Actually, I, maybe Noah has a system that she wants to use. Uh, no? Okay, because maybe we could just have people call out. Is that okay? That's perfectly fine. And if people need help unmuting, let me know and I will do my best to assist. Okay, I do like ending a little bit on a cliffhanger because then you'll come back. Uh, but you know, the point that I want uh, you to take away from this class is that there is a very striking turn towards portraying the Egyptians as inherently evil, uh, which you don't see in earlier texts before Philo and Josephus. And when you put this into conversation with what non-Jews are saying about the Jewish people, you might get a better understanding of what Josephus and Philo are trying to do. So yes, any questions? Is there a specific point in time where you see the change or the shift um, in how the, the 10 plagues and um, Pharaoh are, are, um, are portrayed? Is there a, a, an exact time or is it an evolution? I think it's an evolution. Uh, I, what you see in the first century BC and first century CE is an emergent coagulation of common accusations against the Jewish people. So that for the first time ever, you're going to see themes about Jews. This is what we're going to talk about next week. What are some themes about Jews? Misanthropia, that's a Greek word. They're anti-people. They're superstitio, that's a Latin word. They're superstitious. They're not part of the Roman religio, the legitimate Roman religion. They're outside of society, even when they live among us. They're not full citizens even when they have citizenship. They're ritualistic, they're particularistic, they don't share in table fellowship. And you see towards the end of the first century BCE, all these accusations coming but from multiple directions. Now by the first century, 
Josephus is absolutely sensitive to these accusations and he writes a whole treatise about it. Philo is likewise aware of certain accusations about the Jews and also uh, parallels that are being made whether diasporan Jews want them to be made or not between diasporan Jews and Judean Jews. Now again, if you feel that there are contemporary resonances, you wouldn't be wrong. So we're going to pick up next week and talk about what are outsiders to the Jewish community saying about Jews? And specifically, what are they saying about the 10 plagues and how are they using the story? And then what we're going to see, but I don't wanna to give too much away, is that the Jews become the recipients and the subjects of the story. So that they're the ones who are plagued. They're the ones who are leprous. They're the ones who are diseased. They're the ones who are dirty. And we're going to look at later Christian sources that talk about they're the ones who spread plague. Of course, this comes to a head in the 13th century with the Black Plague, but it starts in the first century. And that's what we're going to talk about next week. I will read uh, Viva's question for question. her because her microphone does not work. So I don't know what her voice typically sounds like. I'll just use my own. So you seem to assume that the Roman leaders would see themselves in Pharaoh, but why wouldn't the Romans see the Egyptian story as a fairy tale in contrast with the much smarter and more sophisticated Roman leaders? Something like making fun of George III in the context of the American Revolution. It's a great question, but there also isn't, uh, <clears throat> you know, in the late first century BC and the early first century CE, there's so much familial biological interaction with the Egyptian family. Think about, think about Mark Antony sleeping with Cleopatra and having children together, right? Think about the imperial Roman occupation of Egypt. So Egypt is not a thing of the past. It's not exoticized in the first century. In fact, it's occupied by Rome. And there's all kinds of sort of negative, but negative bias against Cleopatra, but also fascination with her, but also they wanna conquer her, right? So uh, I, I, I view Egypt as Roman as it was, right? As it was in the first century CE. Uh, and so uh, when Rome comes to occupy Egypt in the first century BC, it pushes all the classes down, right? So it used to be that the Greeks occupied Rome and then the Egyptians were the natives and they were considered actually like inferior and the Jews were sort of with the Egyptians maybe. And then the Romans come in and they push the Greeks and the Egyptians down. So there is an identification with Egyptian leadership, I think, but it's a very complicated situation. All right, well, I put my email in the chat. If you have questions, I will try to get to you. My children are on Zoom school this week, so my availability is pretty low. I apologize for speaking too fast. A few of you reached out to me. I did a little, a little uh, Zooming, pardon the pun. I, uh, I, I spoke very fast this evening, but of course, if you have any questions, I'm very happy to clarify. Uh, and I, I hope to see you all next week. Thank you, uh, of course, to Dr. Simkovich for a fabulous class. And thank you to everyone who joined us today on Zoom, Drisha Live, and on Facebook. We truly do appreciate having you all part of Drisha's learning community. We're going to continue with our spring programming. 
tomorrow at 8 p.m. Eastern with the start of a fascinating class entitled Quandaries of Quarantine in Biblical, Talmudic, and Hasidic Literature, given by Rabbani Leia Sarna. You can find out more information and register for that class, as well as all of our other spring programming on our website at www.drisha.org classes. And if you want to listen to this class again, that will also be on the website. So you can, you know, keep going and going and going until you're sure that you have it all. But I think, I think most of us got it. And I think I hope most of us will be back again next week because this has been wonderful. Thank you again, Dr. Simkovich for Thank this wonderful you. opportunity to learn with you and for everyone who attended. And we hope to see you all again very soon.